Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Richard Powers is one of America's most distinguished novelists. In 2006, his novel The Echo Maker won the National Book Award and was a finalist for the Pulitzer, and his most recent novel, The Overstory, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. In 2003, his novel The Time of Our Singing was published to excellent reviews, a multi-generational epic of the civil rights movement. The book combined his love of physics and music and put it in the context of political reality. It took his writing to a new level, becoming a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and winning two other major literary awards. This interview was the first of three interviews I've conducted thus far with Richard Powers, recorded on February 14, 2003, in the KPFA studios while he was on tour for The Time of Our Singing. My guest is Richard Powers, whose latest novel is The Time of Our Singing. This is a massive novel that deals with music in detail. It deals with physics. It deals with time. And it deals with, most importantly, race in America. A quick overview of the novel, I guess, is it concerns a family. Father is white. The wife is black. They have three children of varying degrees of color themselves. The lightest-skinned Jonah goes on to become a major singer of early music. Middle son, the narrator of the piece, Joseph, becomes a pianist and a teacher. And the youngest daughter, Ruth, goes her own way in the black community. The book is set between 1939 and, I guess, the mid-1990s, and it's 630 pages long, which is quite long. Let me ask you this. When you're writing a book of this sort, do you ever think about length during the process of writing? The question of, of how long a book should be, for some reason, Abraham Lincoln's answer to the question of how long a man's legs should be pops into mind, long enough to reach the ground. The book has to be long enough to, to reach its theme and uh, the, the theme of race is certainly an epic one. And adding to that the principal notion uh, of the book, which is that uh, race is a social invention that changes uh, and, and changes year by year and decade by decade, requires a certain uh, large canvas. And, and with this theme of time and the, the variability and um, uh, the curvature of time, some amount of sweep is necessary to feel these lives as traversing large expanses uh, um, psychically and temporally. That being said, there's the perpetual, I think the author is, is, is constantly examining um, what can and can't be, be asked of people, certainly in, in the age of the quick cut, in the age of the, the soundbite and MTV approach to, to, to length. Putting aside just the length in dealing with the audience, because there is something in the time of our singing, which is the relationship of the performer in the case of, of the book, uh, Jonah, 
the the singer, but even Joseph, the other brother, uh, playing the piano, there is the relationship of the performer to the audience That's and right. what the performer gives and what the performer expects back. Right. And his relationship to the audience and what he needs from them and what he sees himself giving to them also changes over the course of his lifetime. He is in some ways uh, along another axis of time trying to burrow his way back into a music that might somehow uh, return him mythically to a, a time before slavery, before racial collision. But it also is, in some ways unknown to him, a long journey to return him to an idyllic childhood, the childhood that his parents had attempted to give him misguided uh, idealistic experiment to raise their children beyond race. Richard Powers, is there any relationship between that and what he's doing and what Richard Powers himself is doing here? Or, is, or are you just examining race from the perspective mm. of, of this white writer who feels it's time to deal with the issue? I mean, what, what is the relationship there? I know that these books are not autobiography, but what is the relationship there, if any? It's certainly the question that I most worried about in deciding to take on this book. Um, where would my authority reside as a white wasp writer attempting to you know, portray this family of much more fluid but certainly more marginal uh, racial identification? And it, it occurred to me that the way to, to, to treat this would be to write a story that would be an attempt to trouble the exact same issue that I was looking at in looking for the authority to, to raise this question of, of cultural ownership. So if I could create mixed-race children who were basically given an upbringing in a white cultural milieu, the world of classical music, in the 40s and 50s, and then released from this somewhat abstract and, and, and highly uh, guarded uh, experiment into the, into the real world of America and had them suddenly be forced to be accountable to uh, the music that they were singing and, and what it meant for them to be singing that music, that their journey and my journey would be the same somehow. Jonah has a, has a teacher at one point when he is feeling most alienated from the, the, the fae 19th century art songs that, that, he, that uh, he's been singing. And she grows furious with him and finally puts the challenge of art directly in his lap and says, if you are going to sing, if you cannot become someone else at the moment that you perform this art, don't even bother walking out on stage. In a sense, becoming black for these children in, in the America of the 60s and 70s and 80s is a kind of improvised performance, very much in the same way that this empathetic leap, become one's, uh, becoming someone other than myself, uh, was at the, at the, the core in um, the challenge of adopting uh, this novel as, as, as my theme. As you immerse yourself in that and you become that, what happens to the outside world? I mean, you, you've still got to go out and do your research while you're working on the book, I would assume. Or is the research done before? A fair amount of the research is done prior to the, to the uh, commencement of the writing. 
you simply have to know the terrain well enough to, to know uh, what you can and can't get away with. But, of course, the research continues throughout the, the creation of the book. Um, this book was a, was a labor of about three and a half years. So there is a, a precarious relationship with the world, a kind of inside-outside balance that you're, you're constantly reasserting at different points in the creative cycle. But again, it was particularly fun to be writing about performers who were also undergoing their own struggle uh, with being in the world and being removed from the world. There's a certain crystalline structure to all your books. They're, 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 they come together, obviously in this one, but I understand in all of the others as well, where you have disparate strains that all kind of merge, sometimes clearly and sometimes more obliquely. You've written, my technique is the dialogical novel, where there are different moral centers, each of which has its own plausibility. When you said that, it was 2000, were you thinking about this book in particular? No, I was actually thinking about the previous book, Plowing the Dark. This book does also operate in two narrative frames. I think What's different about this book is that those two frames are actually the same story. There is a third-person account of the troubled courtship and early marriage between David Strom and Delia Daly, and that this is written in the third person and is a kind of fixed, limited focalization on these characters and, and their families and the struggle to make a go of this um, treacherous and fraught decision to, to marry and raise a family of their own. The other narrative frame is a first-person account told by the second son, Joseph, and this is told from the perspective of the end of the century, and he is uh, recovering these decades um, in a kind of cavalcade. But, of course, the two stories are completely dependent upon each other, and by the end of the book, you, you realize that the relationship between these two seemingly narrative frames is, is, is a little different than, than perhaps you anticipated going in. What you have here are two frames taking place at different times, but the reader is reading chronologically. In addition to that, there, there is the, um, the specific difficulty of the treatment of, of time in the book as filtered through the sensibility of David Strom, who is a physicist particularly interested in this question and interested in the scandal of time and its reversibility in physics. And he is specifically interested in trying to investigate the possibility that time does not become, that it, that it simply is. And uh, his theory of concurrency also infuses the narrative. And so, yes, the, um, the suspense of turning the pages is not only the suspense of finding out uh, what will happen, but the suspense of finding out what had happened to make the present possible. And in addition, certain images, the meeting of Delia and David at Washington Monument comes up more than once. That's right. The book is in uh, what, what musicians call the, the, uh, the rondo form, so that certain key incidents and venues form landmarks or, or say, pylons in a suspension bridge, and you, ke and you keep coming back again and again to, to those venues and those key incidents, and they keep changing, and the story keeps changing around it. The Goldbug Variations also deals with music, but your other books don't quite, yet you are a musician. You play the cello, is That's that correct? That's right, yeah. yeah. When you were coming into this, how familiar were you with early music? Was that something that you enjoyed anyway? 
Interestingly, I had a, an obsession with early music that had been going on for some years, and so that part was the easy part. What was a little harder, perhaps ironically, was going back and familiarizing myself with the, the real mainstream, the war horses of the of the vocal repertoire, you know, the, the pieces that I probably should have known going into the book and, and uh, uh, had to make myself familiar with um, in the process of writing the book. But one of the great sustaining pleasures of creation of this work was going back and, and immersing myself in the pieces that these performers make their life's work. When you were actually writing, were you listening to music? All the time, which is interesting because, you know, I always have a relationship I guess you might even call it a, a theme song for for each book. And you know, obviously, for for my novel Goldberg Variations, uh, I listen to the Goldbergs at least once a day for the course of months and months. Was this the Dowland? Dowland is certainly a key theme song for this book, but because of the the subject of the book, taking singing itself as as its motor engine, my listening was was much broader. So, what was your theme? I guess if I if I had to pick the single song, it would be the Dowland, uh, Time Stands Still. And uh, this is a song that, as with some of these other rondos in the book, recurs at different moments in the boy's life and ends up meaning very different things to them at those moments. What was it like for you at the point when you began having to deal with hip-hop? That was a real education, and that was a ground-up education. For me, it actually released certain possibilities for the, the, the generation beyond the children, Ruth's uh, children. Going back and listening to the early days of rap allowed me to formulate these characters and to, to visualize what might and might not happen to them. You had to have known or learned a lot about what the trends were and the performing trends in Europe mm-hmm. during the 1970s and 1980s. Yeah. Again, the the historical groundwork or the uh, research for the book consisted not only in familiarizing myself with the repertoire, but what the repertoire meant at these different moments. So a sort of second-order rate of change to time. There's also the sequence in um, in Atlantic City where um, the brother Joseph does his performing, and, and no matter what he plays, and he plays riffs of everything, they all seem like riffs of something else. And I was wondering, as I was reading that, if there were times when Richard Powers might be writing all this brilliant stuff and kept kept keep saying to himself, "Am I writing something somebody's <laughs> other work?" Well, what's interesting about um, about Joey is because of this rarefied upbringing that his parents have given him, and not only the immersion within their family in this classical music tradition, but sending him away first to a, a conservatory prep school and then later to Juilliard almost guarantees that he's going to be completely out of touch with his time, the music of his moment, and certainly out of touch with the music that people would assign to him visually when right. they see him and meet him. He is very much a musician of the printed page. He is a performer through long, arduous rehearsal. And at the crisis point in his life where his brother abandons him and, and uh, heads off to Europe, and he himself becomes disillusioned with the world of concert music, he is forced to learn relatively late in life how to improvise, literally. This is one, one of many reversals of, of, of cultural ownership in the book. He is forced in some way to learn how to pass as black, uh, both as a, first as a performer and, and later as a person. When you were writing that, and he was doing that by attempting to pick up these different pieces. What goes through you as a writer? Do you ever do you ever go 
I'm treading on my own <laughs> on my own toes, or do you feel as if you've become Joseph to such a degree that this isn't Richard Powers anymore? I think you can have both of those feelings. I mean, I think on those days where the immersion in the creative process is working and is airborne and is sufficient to sustain you, you feel as if you have license to make any mistake in the book because it's no longer your life and all you are accountable to is, is bringing this guy alive. And then there are moments where the process is perhaps becoming a bit more fitful or you're, you're nearing completion and beginning to uh, anticipate the way that the, the work is going to be read by lots of folks in lots of quarters and a little more sense of the vertigo of art comes in. Again, my salvation was to live the life my characters were living. Art is at sometimes for them a salve. It is sometimes for them an evasion. It is sometimes for them absolutely an abyss and a confrontation, an agitation. You take your sense of exhilaration and you take your sense of precariousness and vulnerability and you put it into the story. When you're dealing with the artist and the performance, though, you're getting awfully close to Richard Powers. It's mm. not like you're writing about some guy sitting in a Beirut prison. I mean, you're, right. you're, 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 you're getting very close to who you are and what you are doing to the world as well. But, of course, one of art's programs is all, always to find a kind of commonality of experience. But another concurrent program of art is to place yourself somewhere where you have never had right of entry. And most people will, I think, feel that most prominently in the racial crossover, the attempt to speak in a voice of someone who is being seen by this country in a way completely inimical to the, to the way that, uh, that people on the street see or respond to me. So, yes, you use those commonalities to create the empathetic leap, but you also can't be lured into the assumption that that story is going to be known to you and, and uh, have to constantly test the, the plausibility and the, the vitality of that story as it departs from your own. I, I guess one of the insights that these characters circle around is the possibility that racism as driven as it is by a fear of difference, all of those things that are not me and consequently threatening to me because they would completely rewrite everything, uh, all, all of the values and all of the things uh, that I hold dear and, and believe in, may also be driven by a fear of similarity. That insofar as our sense of self depends upon feeling that all those people who are not us are very different from us, that sense of self is threatened the moment the possibility arises that the difference is not as great as we've been manufacturing. When David and Delia marry, their act is actually illegal in a great number of states, and in fact uh, continues to be illegal in many, many states all the way up until 1967, when the Supreme Court finally strikes down the miscegenation law. And it occurred to me in the, in the course of writing the book that if we needed this whole complex and fortified apparatus of social and legal proscriptions against mixed marriage, it must be that something in us is afraid that mixed marriage might bring about a loss of self through 
mixing, a loss of identity to similarity. This was quite a wonderful possibility to play with. The idea that uh, perhaps losing your sense of self to mixing to that other, to the similarities that you had constructed as being so different, might not be all that bad a thing. As you were talking, I kept thinking of Yugoslavia pulling apart and coming together. Mm. You know, there you've got these people who are all from the same region at the same time. They killed themselves. That's right. And they were, they were yet the same, different, pulled apart, pushed together, wanting to preserve identity. And it all fell apart. That is absolutely what we have done in this country in a variety of ways for hundreds of years. The metaphor in the time of our singing for how it could work in a positive way is the way Jonah has the members of his group sing from different parts of the stage mm. so that they're all, you can look at each one individually and yet together they're one voice. Right, right. In fact, for me, that was the great beauty of, of using music as the primary subject matter for the book. Perhaps y- unique as a form of, of human expression in its additive nature. When you superimpose a second melody on top of a first, the first doesn't blend into the second. It's not lost in the second. The second is, is, is not overpowering or l- lost to the, to the first, but rather they create this third thing, counterpoint, chords. So it was that extended metaphor uh, uh, of saying that lives bumping up against lives, groups bumping up against groups, times bumping up, uh, bumping up against times, not it annihilating uh, one another, not overriding one another, somehow harmonizing, sometimes in dissonance, sometimes in consonance, but always a moving thing, pitches in time. Richard Powers, you have an interesting life. You spent uh, 10 years of your early life in Thailand, in Bangkok, and then you came back Uh, and lived in Chicago, outside of Chicago. Is that correct? Actually, I was born in Chicago and went to Bangkok as an 11-year-old and uh, spent my teen years there, not quite 10. It was actually a bit shorter, but uh, yeah. So there were some years when I felt very uh, visually conspicuous and uh, instantly uh, identifiable as being apart from, from the culture that I lived in. Did you know the Thai language? I did. When you're that young, before puberty, you can pick up a language almost without studying it, just by, by being out there on the street. It was uh, also a kind of uh, secret language in a way, since it's a, it's a pitched language, like Chinese. It, uh, uh, the, the meanings of the words uh, will, will vary depending upon the, uh, the rising or the falling or the high or the low tone that you give a word. So very, very musical language in that respect. But uh, we, we kids, my brothers and sisters and I, just delighted in the fact that we had entry into this language that our parents couldn't hear and couldn't uh, understand. So, of course, it was our, our secret language of communication, too. How alienated did you feel? You, you were living, uh, was that in DeKalb at that point? When I came back from yeah. Bangkok? Yeah. Yeah. How alienated did you feel? It was by far harder to come back to the United States than it was to go to Thailand. The amount of culture shock upon returning was an order of magnitude more than, than that going. Part of that problem, the returnee's problem, is always that you think you understand the culture that you're coming back to. You have the expectation that somehow you have a rite of passage and you can come back into it and know the ropes and, and pass, move smoothly through it. And uh, the, the culture shock of the returnee is uh, in, in seeing the thing that you thought was yours being unrecognizable. Richard Powers, you wound up learning physics 
planning to be a physicist. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's what I studied as an undergraduate. I always thought uh, as a high schooler and uh, uh, when I first entered college that I would end up a scientist. After that, you wound up um, computer and computers and computer programming and somewhere along the line became a writer. <laughs> well, I still am not sure exactly how that came about or, or what I'm going to do when I grow up, but having taken a master's degree in, in literature and then leaving school, I found that um, the programming skills that I had uh, developed actually on my own were by far the, the most saleable thing that I had going for me. So yes, I did spend some years um, in data processing and, and then later in, in freelance programming, which was a, a kind of wonderful combination for getting started with, with writing novels. Is there any kind of comparison you could see, now that you're looking back on it, between writing a novel and, say, programming a very detailed application? I think there are quite a few. First of all, there is the discipline of structure. There is something about keeping all your subroutines in a row and knowing what each one does and when each has to be called. That's a wonderful training for the long form. The trick of novels, of course, is to make something seem effortless and and organic and continuous and yet trigger all sorts of insights in in the reader by structural parallels, uh, contrasts, diversions that are really uh, developments and so forth. And all of these things, I think, um, I had my first look at in coding. I think, too, there's the debugging component of the program development cycle. What that did is basically made me see that revision is the most beautiful part of of, um, writing. I love it far more than composition tinkering and crafting a sentence until it it will run without uh, generating an error. There's a point where the analogy has to fall apart because characters take on lives of their own. That's right. And when characters take on lives of their own... Programs take on lives of their own too, (laughs) unfortunately. But uh, no, I I think you're absolutely right. What I've been describing is is what I call the the top-down creation saying, I know I want to write a book and it's going to be on this theme and consequently it's going to have to have uh, these parts and the parts are going to have to trouble or worry or interrogate or examine you know, different aspects of these questions. And then you get into the trenches and you start working and you realize in order for it to come off the page, you can't be telling it what to do anymore. Right. Yeah. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's the bottom-up part. That's uh, uh, allowing the peculiarities of personality or uh, uh, event or, or scene to tell you what's internal and necessary uh, to them. Is there a point, is there ever a point, did a point come in this where you'd written your way into some kind of corner that you couldn't write out, or is there always a revision, the hope of revision to write yourself out? When you think about it, the, the top-down and the bottom-up stuff is happening all the time. Um, you know, even if... If you're much more uh, on one side of that divide than the other, you're you're constantly trying to, to invigorate the book by approaching it from the other direction, using structural device to to, to lend a, a kind of power and 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 a radiance to uh, local invention or some surprise nuance of voice or development to give organic impulse to something that w- would otherwise um, be, be mathematical or, or structured. The problem is if you're cutting through this mountain from two sides at once, it's very unlikely that the, the tunnel is going to connect on the first go. I tend to think of the first draft as 
an extended note to myself about what should have been. And then that becomes my kind of working uh, blueprint for going back through and saying, well, let's, you know, let's blast through, uh, you know, recut these tunnels so that they actually do connect. For a writer like uh, Ethan Kanan, the hardest part is the transition between sequences to try to make it fit right. chronologically. Right. For you, is that easy or difficult generally? The transition. It's a wonderful thing to point to because to use a musical analogy, the transition has a horizontal function, right, to get out of one region and into another, but it has a vertical function too. And balancing the two, I think, can, uh, can be quite precarious. I mean, uh, essentially what you're saying is there is something in this other region that resembles the first region, and without imposing the authorial hand from above, you know, I can get you over that, that bridge. I guess it's, it's particularly interesting, too, when you're working with different kinds of narrative frames. What access, what knowledge does, you know, the 1939 story have to the, to the 1990 story? And how do, you, how do you transition backwards in time, you know, or forward across a gulf of years that are missing? Is that easier to do when you're dealing with a single story than when you're dealing with multiple stories like in some of your other works? I think there are challenges and, and opportunities to, to each. Um, for instance, in, in Plowing the Dark, the two narrative frames, the, the, the one that has to do with uh, creating a, a, a walk-in virtual reality in, in Seattle in the late 1980s and, and early 1990s, actually has almost nothing at all to do narratively with this story that's taking place in a, in a cell in Beirut a white room and its its uh, solitary hostage uh, during those same years, but I needed to construct those stories so that they were conversing with each other, and so that there were certain kinds of graphic and and auditory matches between those stories that seemed both to connect and propel the motion from one frame to the other, but also seemed completely legitimate and integral to the frame itself. I keep seeing that analogy with music, segues. That's right. What's wonderful about something like, like the sonata form is that it can be highly structured. You, know, you can have your primary theme group, you can have your secondary theme group, and ideally, you, know, you could sit in an analysis class and look at those regions and say, now we are here, and now we are there, and now we have uh, development, and now we're taking apart the primary theme, now we're reassembling. But in, in fact, when you're in the con- concert hall and the music is playing, all bets are off, and the forward motion of the music and, the, and, and, and what makes it visceral and compelling has to do with a kind of internal urgency all its own. I was talking to uh, Michael Ondaatje, who wrote a book about Walter Murch and the art of editing film. And Murch, who edited films like the Godfather films, instinctively knows when to make a change. Mm. It's so instinctive. And when we see it on the screen, we don't even think about it. And yet he can know within a frame. Mm. And that's 24 frames per second. He can know within a frame. And the only way he knows is he goes to the same point three times in a row. A frame. Oh, remarkable. Remarkable. (laughs) I'm not sure I have that kind of control in, in, in novels, but uh, it's what you're shooting for anyway. Richard Powers, I'm going to throw a couple of quotes out for you here, um, and I want you to see if, if, this is, if this has changed, if your view has changed since you said these. And this is about fiction in general. Everything you write is a revision of what you've seen. That's one thing. And the other is the purpose of fiction is to make you more capable of narrating the world outside fiction. 
Well, let me start with the first. Everything you write is a revision of what you've seen. Maybe that's what we do when we invent ourselves anyway, right? I mean, we are, um, we're, we're constantly thrown up against this, you know, continuous stream of, of real-time sensation and, and event and transaction, and yet we have to somehow say it means something, and there's some kind of logic and continuity to it. In short, we have to make of unrelated event a story. The refrain from Galateo, we live our lives as a tale told, you know, coming from the Psalms, uh, really puts on the table this sense that living is itself storytelling. It is editing for narrative continuity where there was none. What's, I think, essential, though, is that that process is not fixed. The story that you tell one day needs to be revised as the new thing that you're seeing enters into the, into the mix. And all uh, the, the old continuities are broken up and uh, then reassembled into something that you may feel is still a continuous story and continuous with the previous story, and yet it is a new development. The second quote, the purpose of fiction is to make you more capable of narrating the world outside fiction. I do still believe that. And it's not unrelated to to what we were just talking about. Um, If the act of living is the act of taking the overwhelming, almost schizophrenic assault of of real-time event and turning it into a livable, continuous, shaped narrative, maybe what books can do for us is to take us out of real time for a moment. And maybe it's just for those 20 minutes before we fall asleep, uh, which is the way that, that, that uh, most people make time for, for, for reading these days. But to place us into a new relationship with time, right? One in which an hour might unfold over several or a year might take place in a, in a moment. And in that moratorium, in that kind of simulation of real-world event, we can see people struggling to make stories, and we can see those stories fall apart. We can see, th- see those stories fail to protect them from event. We can see how personality always has to come back and try to reconstitute narrative continuity in some other place. And if we can see them doing it in this little hideaway, in this little secluded moratorium where time can expand and contract uh, according to, to our inner need, then maybe when we close the cover and start up real time again, we have just a few more resources for figuring out how to do that. Unless the book is fantasy, uh, and, and I don't mean fantasy as with the capital F, I mean just something that takes us so totally away. But then is it doing that? This is a very difficult calculation to make. When fiction is mere escapism, right, and avoidance of things as they are, and when fiction is escape, providing solace and, and health and, and restoration from things as they are. Right. A tough calculus to make. And you know what? The reader has as much to say about what side of that uh, dichotomy a reading experience is on a, as the author does. Richard Powers, you said at one point that each novel is a response to the earlier novel. To that degree, the time of our singing is in some respects a response to Plowing the Dark. How? Plowing the Dark explores the relationship between the worlds that we're making with our technologies and the worlds inside our own imagination. And it ultimately comes to see machines 
not as some external threat, you know, menace or salvation that's thrust upon us from the outside, but actually a projection of our own hopes and and fears. So it's the white room of the imagination finding ways of writing itself out into this world of, of, of runaway technology. And as such, the book is necessarily an exploration of the fragility and improvised nature of identity, which, of course, is the starting place for the time of our singing. What I really wanted to push as hard as I could in this new book was the possibility that identity can be as threatening to us as it is important to us. Identity by opposition is as destructive to us as the act of self-formation is supposed to be solidifying and, and, and liberating. Belonging, the dual nature of belonging, both you know, the, the, the necessity for it, the comfort and strength that belonging give us, but pushed over the line, the tyranny of belonging, of not being able to understand the limits that belonging naturally impose upon you. In that sense, I think the time of our singing attempts to trouble and extend the theme of connection or failure to connect that's raised in Plowing the Dark. To that degree, and I won't even go into whether you've even thought about another novel, but there must be a point here in this book where you say, aha, okay, that must be the starting point for my exploration next time. Do you have that point? I, I think so. I think so. It's, it's tough to talk about because right now I'm still at the improvisation stage. I'm still learning what this next theme wants from me. So somehow you discover what it is. I think it's already so. there. I think so. Writing is, several great writers have pointed out, uh, the act of figuring out what it is that you're writing. Speaking of great writers, who are your own influences? Obviously, reading your book, I see DeLillo here to some degree. Huh. But I also see, and maybe this is completely off the wall, Joyce Carol Oates. Oh, how interesting. That's, uh, that's lovely, and I'm, and I'm flattered. Uh, I'm not sure I've, I've ever heard somebody make that um, connection directly. This book was, for me, a wonderful attempt to try to deflect my sense of genealogy. Well, first of all, I, I had to, to immerse myself in lots of oral histories. I read everything that I could get my hands on on the mixed-race experience in America and what a precarious negotiated contract that is and how variable it is and how, how much that has changed in, in the course of time. The sense of, of being, as Venner Solaris calls it, neither white nor black, yet both. But it was also a great opportunity to go back and read many of the real landmarks of the, the African-American canon and also work that perhaps isn't as widely read, but that for me provided a, a, a kind of historical grounding on how to think about what the time of our singing ends up calling the continuous new frequencies of race in America. It was also very valuable to to come forward in time and and read contemporary studies. Uh, Rosalind Story wrote a terrific um, account of the history of of African Americans' relationship to classical music called And And So I Sing. This book started probably about 17 years ago when I saw the newsreel footage of Marian Anderson on the Mall, Easter 1939, at the concert that resulted from her being barred from performing in in Constitution Hall. And I guess what made me feel as if I would have to someday write a book in which that scene appeared 
was her choice of what to begin the concert with. There she was standing outside singing uh, for free to this audience of 75,000 people, singing in, in her coat, like it or not, welding uh, the world of music together to the world of political scandal and choosing to open that concert with America, my country tis of thee. And the complexities artistically and personally and the enormous pain and possibility um, that were joined in her choice of a repertoire at that moment stayed with me. I wanted to know what Sweet Land of Liberty what, what the thee meant to her and what thee we were singing and what country we have yet to sing into existence. So all of those tunes were driving me forward in putting this story together. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.